Part 2. Bible Study What is Bible study? Bible study is exactly what it sounds like. The act of studying the Bible. Christians employ this valuable tool by setting aside time to read and learn from the Word of God. Why is Bible study important? Paul told Timothy, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16-17, through 17, ESV If the Scriptures are God-breathed, then Bible study is our opportunity to have a conversation with the Creator and Sustainer of the universe. Through prayer, we talk to God, and through Bible study, God talks to us. Peter confirmed the fact that prophecy, divine messages inspired by God, never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.21 If it's part of Scripture, it's because God wanted it there. And if God wanted it there, it's because He wanted it there for us. Paul further explained that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Romans 15.4 ESV For thousands of years, God has been inspiring His servants to speak, write, and preserve the words that we need to hear. And those words are waiting for us in the pages of the Bible. By setting aside time to read and engage with those words, we allow God to teach, rebuke, correct, and train us in righteousness. Chapter 4. Understanding the Bible's Structure In order to get the most out of our Bible study, we need to understand a few important facts about how the Bible has been arranged. The Two Testaments The first thing you'll notice in your Bible's table of contents is that it's divided into two sections called Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. A testament, in this context, is another word for covenant, and covenant is another word for a binding agreement. In other words, the two testaments of the Bible deal with two covenants, two binding agreements, between God and His people. These two covenants are ultimately at the core of the Christian religion, and God's purpose for the entire human race, for that matter. Taking the time to understand them provides us with valuable context for our personal Bible studies. The Old Testament The primary covenant of the Old Testament was between God and the people of ancient Israel. After God rescued Israel from captivity in the land of Egypt, He led them through the wilderness to Mount Sinai. At Sinai, God laid out what He expected of the Israelites, along with all the blessings that would come from becoming His chosen people. Israel spent nearly a year camped near Sinai, learning about God's laws and standards. One of the first things God did at Sinai was give Moses the Ten Commandments, a set of ten short rules that explain how we should treat God the first through fourth commandments, and how we should treat each other, the fifth through tenth commandments. But before giving those ten commandments, this is what God told Israel. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus 19, 5-6 The Israelites replied, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. Verse 8. They said similar words when they officially agreed to the covenant in Exodus 24, verse 7. The majority of the Old Testament revolves around this special covenant. Starting at the beginning of creation, 
The Old Testament shows us how that covenant came to be, why it mattered, and how it was ultimately broken and rejected by Israel. But God's plan for the human race was not derailed. Scattered throughout the Old Testament are references to another future covenant. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 33. Chronologically, the Old Testament covers around 3,500 years of human history. There is a roughly 400-year span between the last page of the Old Testament and the first page of the New Testament. The New Testament The Old Testament ends with Israel's failure to uphold their commitment to God. The New Testament opens with the hope and the promise that God has not given up on His people, or the world. The New Testament tells the story of how the Word became a human being, the Son of God, lived a perfect, sinless life, and became a willing sacrifice to pay the penalty of humanity's sins. This Son of God, whom we now know as Jesus Christ, initiated the New Covenant through His perfect sacrifice. He told His followers that it would be the New Covenant in My blood which is shed for you. Luke 22 verse 20. This new covenant is no longer between God and the physical nation of Israel. Peter explained the terms and conditions of entering into this new covenant with God. Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you, and to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Acts 2 verses 38-39 Through repentance and baptism, anyone can enter into this new covenant relationship with God. The New Testament is largely focused on how that covenant came to be, what it looks like to live under that covenant, and how that covenant will ultimately result in a wonderful new world. It's important to note that the New Covenant was not God's attempt to fix things on the fly after Israel rejected the Old Covenant. Jesus Christ was slain from the foundation of the world, Revelation 13 verse 8. His sacrifice and the resulting new covenant was part of God's plan from the very beginning. Chronologically, the New Testament covers around 100 years of human history. The Books of the Bible The next thing you'll notice in your Bible's table of contents is that both the Old and New Testaments are filled with books, not chapters. That's because the Bible isn't a single book. It's actually a compilation of other books. There are a total of 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, and 27 in the New Testament. The list of books accepted as Scripture is referred to as the canon. Why these books? Who decided that these 66 books belong in the Bible? Who decided that other books don't belong? As it turns out, there are many other books that present themselves as inspired works of God, even ones that claim to be written by familiar authors of the Bible. One group of such books is collectively known as the Apocrypha. It's beyond the scope of this booklet to fully explain why some ancient books made it into the Bible and others didn't. The subject of canonicity is one that people have written entire books about. For example, From God to Us, How We Got Our Bible by Norman L. Geisler and William E. Nix. The short version is this. 
we believe that the Jewish people were entrusted with the very words of God. Romans 3 verse 2, NIV. And that through the centuries, they carefully preserved what we now call the Old Testament. We believe that the early leaders of the New Testament church likewise collected and preserved the writings that God led them to see as inspired scripture. Peter, for example, referred to some of Paul's writing as scripture in 2 Peter 3 verse 16. The historical record gives us a glimpse into this process. Written letters and records from hundreds and thousands of years ago make it very clear that certain books have always been accepted as trustworthy, while others have been either viewed with skepticism or rejected as soon as they arrived on the scene. Early leaders in the 1st to 2nd century church often referenced passages of scripture in their writings, alerting us to what New Testament books were already considered canonical, and occasionally what books weren't. Besides the historical record, the vast majority of the apocryphal books have obvious red flags. Many conflict with established biblical teachings, offer alternate accounts of biblical events, and appear to have been written far later and by other authors than they claim to be. We cover some of this in our article, Apocrypha. Is it part of the Bible? For a more in-depth study, consider finding a copy of From God to Us by Geisler and Nix. Suffice it to say, there is a great deal of evidence showing that God made sure our modern-day Bibles contain these 66 books. No more and no less. Why this order? If you read straight through the Bible, starting at the beginning and continuing on to the end, you'll quickly discover that these books jump all around the biblical timeline. Ezra and Nehemiah talk about the rebuilding of the temple. Then, three books later, we have the Psalms, many of which were written by King David before the first temple was even built. And then, one book before the Psalms is Job, which may have taken place sometime during the events of the book of Genesis. Why aren't these books in the order they actually happened? It's not obvious at first glance, but these books are grouped together based on their content, and not always their chronology. Traditional Hebrew Groupings The Jewish version of the Bible, the Tanakh, includes only what we know as the Old Testament, although some of the books are in a different order than you might be used to. It's traditionally divided into three sections. The Law, known as the Torah, the Prophets, known as the Nevi'im, and the Writings, known as the Kedivim. The word Tanakh actually comes from taking the first letter of each of those sections, T, N, and K, and adding in vowels. These divisions would have been the ones used while Jesus was on the earth. He made references to them in Matthew 5, verse 17, and Luke 24, verse 44. Note, Several of these books were originally a single work, and some versions of the Tanakh present them that way. Instead of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, for example, you may find a book labeled Samuel, and similarly with Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. The law, or Torah, includes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The prophets, or Nevi'im, include the former prophets, Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and 2 Kings. The major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And the minor prophets, sometimes called the Twelve. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. The writings, or Ketuvim, include poetry, Psalms, Proverbs, and Job, the Festival Scrolls, or Megaloth, Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther, and other books of the writings, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, First Chronicles, 
and 2 Chronicles. Alternative Old Testament Groupings In most English Bibles, the Table of Contents lists those Old Testament books in a different order. These, too, can be grouped according to their content. The Law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Historical Books, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Wisdom Literature, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs. Prophetic Books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. New Testament Groupings The New Testament books can likewise be grouped into four different categories. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. History, the Book of Acts. The Epistles, or letters written to the Church. The Epistles of Paul, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Paul's prison epistles, which were Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, and the book of Hebrews. This text does not include the author's name. And the general epistles, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Jude. Prophecy, the book of Revelation. Adding chapters and verses. To make reading and referencing the Bible easier, scribes and translators began dividing the books of the Bible into chapters and verses. Although the practice is centuries old, it wasn't until the 16th century that the Geneva Bible introduced the chapter and verse system that we use today. Chapters, as you might expect, divide the book into more manageable chunks. Verses go one step further and divide the individual chapters into even smaller chunks. Often these chunks are sentences, but a verse might include multiple sentences or even just a single part of a much longer sentence. These chapters and verses are indispensable. If the books of the Bible were cities, then chapters would be roads and verses would be house numbers. This system allows us to pinpoint specific passages of Scripture and communicate them easily to others, something that was not easy to do for a long, long time. When Matthew recorded some of the miraculous healings performed by Jesus, he added that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, Matthew 8.17. Today, we can easily say that Matthew is quoting from the fourth verse of the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, that is, Isaiah 53, verse 4. You can turn in your Bible to that specific verse and verify it for yourself. In fact, we can talk about Matthew chapter 8, verse 17, and how it references Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4, and you can look up both those verses with little difficulty. But 2,000 years ago, the best Matthew could do was reference the fact that Isaiah had spoken those words. It was up to the reader to be familiar enough with the writings of Isaiah to recognize the location of the quote. If you can imagine trying to find a quote in your Bible when all you had to work with was somewhere in Isaiah, you can understand why chapters and verses are such a helpful tool in studying the Bible. Unfortunately, they can also be unhelpful if we don't keep an important detail in mind. Chapters create artificial breaks. 
The chapters and verses of the Bible are artificial. Paul didn't write a letter to the Galatians broken into chapters and verses. He just wrote them a letter. It's easy to look at chapters and verses as natural stopping or starting points, and it's obvious that these breaks were chosen with care, but they were not part of the original text. Remember that. The book of Hebrews is a perfect example of why that matters. Hebrews 11 is popularly known as the faith chapter, a hall of fame highlighting the courageous men and women who followed God through the ages. But it's not a chapter. At least, it wasn't written that way. And if we stop reading at the end of chapter 11, we walk away with an encouraging passage, but it would be like walking away in the middle of a speech. The author of Hebrews didn't put a chapter break between the last verse of chapter 11 and the first verse of chapter 12. After sharing story after story of those who obtained a good testimony through faith but did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us, Hebrews 11 verses 39 through 40, we get this admonition. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12 verses 1 through 2. Therefore, that's a word that asks us to take into consideration everything that led up to this point. The author fixed our gaze on the men and women of faith, told us all about their sacrifices and trust in God, reminded us that God hasn't given them their prize yet because he wants to give it to us too, and then built on all of that by saying, therefore, look to Jesus and run your race. Remember what he did to make that race possible. Remember the people who have run the race before you. Lay aside the bad decisions that keep slowing you down and run. If we just close the book after chapter 11 and come back and read chapter 12 later, we miss all the weight and emphasis of that statement. Chapters don't necessarily tell us where a thought ends or where a point concludes, and we have to be careful not to treat them as if they do. Verses make it easy to miss context. Being able to point to a specific quote from scripture makes it easy to remove that quote from its context. Consider Romans 6 verse 14 where Paul wrote, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. If we are not under law, and if sin shall not have dominion over us, does that mean we no longer have to obey God's laws? On its own, without any other context, that's certainly one way we might interpret that verse, which is exactly why we have to be careful about extracting and analyzing single verses all on their own. Immediately before verse 14, Paul wrote, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Verses 12 through 13. Immediately after verse 14, he wrote, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not! Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Verses 15 through 16. 
The context around this verse makes it incredibly clear. Christians are still capable of sinning and must take steps to avoid it. If we do not obey God, we become slaves of sin. Even with access to God's grace, we can still make ourselves instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Being under grace doesn't make it impossible for us to sin, and it certainly doesn't make sinful actions acceptable to God. Always seek the broader context. The best way to understand any passage in the Bible is by reading it in the context of the book that contains it. If something Paul wrote in one of his epistles is confusing, make sure to read the entire epistle. What else did he say on the subject? If a verse in the book of Judges seems odd, take a look at what was happening around it. Take the whole story into account instead of a single verse, or even a single chapter. That won't always be enough to give us a clear answer, but it's an important place to start. It's easy to let our own preconceived ideas get in the way of what's actually written. So one of the best things we can do, even when we think a verse or chapter does make sense, is to step back and examine the context.